Welcome to AZMCast, the competitive emergency medicine podcast. Our goal on AZMCast is to demonstrate the knowledge, skills, and the approach to help you, the listener, be a top-notch emergency provider. Our panel of emergency specialists will go head-to-head as they navigate a case from the ring down to the workup to the dispo. Panelists will be awarded points for their quick wit, prioritization of tasks, and their clinical application of evidence-based medicine. However, they will lose points for weak arguments that rely on experience-based medicine and the use of banned, unhelpful jargon like gestalt or high index of suspicion or just because I feel like it. The panelists with the most points at the end of each episode will have free reign during the art of EM to rant about whatever aspect of EM is near and dear to their hearts at that given moment. We encourage you, the listener, to pause the podcast at each segment and consider your own approach before going on with the discussion. And our hope is that you will develop a prioritized, evidence-based approach to emergency medicine that will carry you into your next shift. And now, on today's episode, we present for your edutainment, The Ringdown. A 64-year-old male brought in by ambulance for cardiac arrest. But before we get started with the case, let's introduce our panel and give you, the listener, a chance to put yourself in their shoes and consider how you would prepare for this case. Dr. Rachel Munn is an assistant professor of emergency medicine and EMS faculty here at the University of Arizona. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dr. Ali Min is an associate professor of emergency medicine, also at the University of Arizona. Hi, Ali. Hi there. And lastly, Dr. Chris Williams is a clinical assistant professor of emergency medicine here at the University of Arizona and EM philosopher extraordinaire. Thanks, Chris. Let's get this on. All right. So the case coming in, uh, this is the ring down that you get over your phone, your text page, your call out. And it's a 64-year-old male brought in by ambulance for cardiac arrest. So we always, uh, when Brian Drummond is on this show, he always jokes that very few things will get him out of his seat. I'm guessing this one might actually get you out of your seat and get you over to the room. Probably some other gawkers come to the room as well. Uh, so Rachel, I'm going to start with you. As, as you're walking over to the room uh, and you're getting mentally prepared for managing a cardiac arrest, what is going through your mind? Uh, what are you trying to get set before the patient actually comes into the room? I think the biggest things I'm thinking about are who is my team and how can I most effectively organize them and get everything that we need prepared in advance. So in our academic environment, we have sometimes a overabundance of help. We typically have at least one attending, sometimes two, uh, multiple residents. We have pharmacists, techs, nurses, you know, everybody comes. So what roles are necessary and how can you assign those roles so that everyone knows what they're going to be doing in advance? So when the patient does arrive and you're getting your EMS sign off that there is not a lot of commotion or confusion and everyone knows when they should listen and then what their roles are going to be once we assume care of the patient from EMS. Those are probably the biggest things I'm thinking about on my stroll over there. 
And Ali, as you're also strolling over there, um, what are you asking your team to get prepared for you? Uh, what do you think is most important to have? And what do you think is stuff we can go get later if, you know, if we happen to need it? I mean, I think the important stuff other than the people that Rachel already mentioned is, I mean, you need obviously your defibrillator and your the machine that you're going to use to shock somebody if they're in a shockable rhythm. You want your monitors ready to go um, and, and have that um, all available to put on the patient as soon as they arrive. Um, you want the people that you've assigned to be the IV access people, the recorders who are keeping time, they need all that stuff, whatever they need ready to go. I think um, you obviously want to grab um, airway stuff um, and have it in the room uh, on hand ready to go. I think you want an ultrasound. I think you want um, not only the peripheral IV access, but probably central line access stuff ready to go as well. Um, I mean, I think outside the room, potentially you want um, your surgical airway equipment, you want um, any other procedures that you think might um, be necessary um, as far as other lines or tubes, uh, depending on what more you get from the story um, once the patient actually arrives and just sort of have all that stuff handy. And your EKG machine, you, you want that too. Because you're hoping this is actually going to work and we're going to get that patient back, right? That's right. All right, Chris, when you're looking at some of this stuff, uh, you and I were in residency together and it was airway breathing circulation at all times. Um, how often do you see people kind of looking for the advanced airway equipment and forgetting that airway can be as simple as opening the jaw and uh, opening the airway manually? You know, um, if these are arriving via EMS, there's usually something already there, be it a superglottic airway or not. But um, every once in a while, something slips through the cracks and someone is, uh, decompensates as they're coming into the ED or they're dropped off by a family. And, um, and then, then those things are taken for granted. So <clears throat> I, I wrote down here some two things that I frequently see kind of overlooked maybe overlooked because we rely on our support staff so much to get everything for us. Um, but those two things, one would be a superglottic airway, like an eye gel. Um, I find those really helpful to just throw in and, you know, you wait for your, you know, on, on your pulse check. Um, and then the other thing is uh, end tidal brick. Just make sure the end tidal brick is set up and ready to go because I'm going to rely on that when the patient shows Chris, I'll ask you this question as well. We talked about how we usually have an abundance of team members that are around. When you don't have an abundance of team members, who, uh, which roles are most important if you only have two or three people to help you out in a code? Really hard question. Hmm. Obviously, my role is probably the most important regardless of what I'm doing. So um, uh, just kidding. Um, if I'm the only provider, then I'm going to be running the code and I have to think in the back of my head, uh, there may be a one or two procedures, <laughs> one or two procedures that I'm going to have to perform. Um, and so making sure that I have a central line kit in the room, making sure that I have all my airway stuff in the room so that when I'm running the code, I'm not also having to think, where's my equipment? And then um, if you're running the code and there's no one else there to back you up, making sure that you've verbalized the roles that you want. So um, you have someone recording and you have someone placing an IV. Um, I haven't 
ran a code where I've had fewer than three people in the room ever. I'm trying to think if I've ever had to run a code with fewer than three. Um, I, I think I've always had three people. So one person to record and get, you know, maybe get some supplies and another person working on the patient, placing pads, putting an IV in. Usually we're on the other side of it, like, like um, uh, Allie and Rachel mentioned, which is there's a plethora of people in the room. And, um, and our job actually, we have, we're interest, interesting, uh, unique situation where we're not just taking care of the patient, we're also educators. And so if I'm bringing in a resident or usually more than one resident, I make sure that they are taking on the role of leader. And I don't take over that. I, I, I say, who's running this code? And I, and you know, the things that we've talked about making sure we have ready, I bring up with them and say, you know, is there anything that you think you're missing in this room? And then obviously if there's something I think they need, I'll mention it, but I try and let them run it. Chris, one last question. What is a plethora? Why, jefe? There we go. That's what I wanted to hear. All right. Uh, Rachel, I'm going to ask you uh, maybe the same question, but worded a little differently. When you're assigning your roles, when people first get there, uh, what are the roles that you think need to be assigned first? Uh, maybe you don't have like a dearth of people helping you out, but you say these are the roles that are most important and we can figure out the other roles later if somebody just drops on you and you don't really get that time to prepare. Sure. I think the number one thing that we need to be doing for these patients is providing compressions. So that person is arguably the most important and compressions are hard. Um, I think if I were to be doing compressions, my patient's survival would decrease. Um, so I think you need at least two people in line for compressions. And I think those are your, your first most important role. Uh, secondly is attaching the patient to the defibrillator. So you have someone, anyone with hands can do that. And then you could have that person transition to placing an IV or IO depending on the skill level of that provider. So I think those are the top two. And then thirdly, having someone who is orchestrating everything. And whether that's yourself, if you're in the community working solo, or whether that's your resident and you are just a little butterfly on their shoulder, making sure that they are thinking through everything appropriately. And then someone who is kind of taking notes and recording. And I think it's worth noting that if you are in a resource limited situation and you need to do procedures, if you haven't, you know, ALS trained nurse or paramedic in your ED, they can run the resuscitation. They can remind you about medication dosing and pulse checks and kind of and do that for you while your mind is elsewhere focusing on whatever procedure needs done. And Ali, I'll ask you uh, just to kind of round this out. Uh, there's often limited real estate in these rooms. Where are you physically when you're running the code? I like to be near the patient's feet where I have a good view and sort of stepped back, you know, so you have a good landscape view, panoramic view of everything that's happening in the room. You have a good view of the monitor. You can see the ultrasound screen when somebody's using it. Um, you can hear um, very clearly people who are calling out times. Um, so I like to be at the foot of the bed, stepped back a little bit with the, with a good view. And the other thing I would add, one thing that I think the pandemic um, and, and PPE and, and getting all gowned up and into a room has taught us is that having people outside the room that are ready to go grab things um, 
a runner is an important thing. And so that's another thing when you have too many people in the room that need a job, put somebody outside to be the runner, to go get stuff, go, you know, if whenever, um, and it should be somebody who has knowledge of the, of where things are, (laughs) not just a random new person, but somebody who can go get stuff um, that isn't integral to be inside the room at the moment. Not the medical student, not the attending. Yeah. Not somebody on their first day in the (laughs) the attending. Yeah. That's me. You know, during a a delivery and uh, the first thing you ask the father to do is go get some hot water. Yeah. So that you can keep them occupied doing something busy out of the room. So, all right. Well, the patient arrives, uh, patient is unresponsive and EMS is doing one-handed chest compressions down the hall while another one is squeezing a bag that is lightly placed over the patient's face. No slight to EMS whatsoever. However, that's generally the scene. Uh, so the patient arrives in and Rachel, I'm going to ask you to go first with this because this is your uh, area. Um, what are the priorities for you uh, in the EMS to ED transfer? What's the information that you need to know from them before they go? As far as key information, um, I have kind of a, a framework when I'm listening for cardiac arrest calls. And this is something I kind of learned in fellowship when we would take phone calls for either transport or termination of pre-hospital arrests. So I'm listening for kind of the age, comorbidities, and potential code status of the patient. You One would assume that if they're being transported to you, then they are not DNR. However, assuming is dangerous. So I'm listening for that. Their downtime, whether it was witnessed or unwitnessed, and their initial and current rhythms, and then what has been done to the patient uh, in terms of shocks, medications, IVIO, et cetera, and then the response to those. And then kind of at the end, um, I'd like to know about their end title, whether it's been the same, trending down, et cetera. And then lastly, if family is on the way, and if not, if I have contact information for the family, those are, it's a, it's a lot of detail, but those are, I think the key factors that tells you everything you need to know about what's been going on in the the pre-hospital care of this patient, and then how you can kind of best continue forward. Chris, as we kind of go through this, EMS uh, is putting the patient over to the gurney. You've asked them uh, their first round of questions. They do not know code status. Your assumption would be? Full code. Full code. So everything that uh, we would assume that this patient needs, we're going to do it all for them. Um, And you've got the army of uh, people that all have their roles there, and they all kind of uh, descend on the patient and hopefully start doing all of these things. Um, Who is uh, your kind of person that you keep the closest eye on as we uh, initiate this resuscitation? I mean, the, the answer that I'm supposed to give from the house of God is it's me, right? I'm supposed to make sure that I'm, that I'm not tachycardic and diaphoretic. Um, I would probably go back to the compressor. Um, if you're not using a mechanical CPR device, then your compressions are kind of the number one thing. And they're also hard they're, they're easy to do wrong. They're easy to do too fast or too slow or not enough depth or not letting the chest recoil. So it's a, a basic skill, but it's something that's easy to do incorrectly and is important to do correctly. So I think initially I'm making sure that, you know, whoever is doing that role has a good handle on it. And then uh, after that, I trust their skill. 
our defibrillators um, do a pretty good. I, actually, I should ask you, Rachel, if you if you have any idea how how accurate they are at assessing because I, I hear them now. They're saying good comp- compressions or speed up or deeper, and and uh, I think it's wonderful. It actually just takes me a little bit out of the picture, and I can focus on other things. But I, I've I've actually never looked into you know how accurate those are. Are they pretty reliable? They seem to be. It's definitely something that we review, um, particularly Dr. Rice reviews in her weekly cardiac arrest QI with the particularly Northwest and Tucson fire agency. So it's definitely information that we rely on. And that's a really good point that that's something you can cognitively offload um, to a mechanical device. And that frees up your brain to think about other stuff. Excellent. All right. Uh, So you get through uh, the initial kind of handoff from EMS Uh, and you're starting to do a focused physical exam. Allie, what are you doing for a patient in cardiac arrest as far as a physical exam goes? Because we're not doing a head to toe, look in their ears and check their reflexes. Like what are the things that you're focused in on and how are they going to help you figure out what's up with this patient? I mean, theoretically, by this point, somebody's done the ABCs. I think you're assessing airway, you're listening for breath sounds, you're checking pulses. And that's um, something, I mean, I I often like have my hand on the pulse during compressions. I've found myself doing that sort of unintentionally, just finding the femoral pulse and keeping my hand there while I'm running a code. Sometimes I sort of creep up from the foot of the bed. Um, But so I think those obviously are going to be the most important. And I think... um, Aside from that, you just sort of get a global picture. You're looking for just signs of something that might help you. Do they have AV fistulas? Do they have any signs of trauma? Do they have any indwelling stuff or, you know, bags, lines, whatever they may be that might help you um, narrow down what might be going on? Totally on this side, we were running a resuscitation on this uh, patient one time and came to find that they had a port and uh, we accessed their port <laughs> in the middle of the code. We're like, well, that was really handy. We just grabbed one of the other ports and we plunked that, uh, one of the uh, special needles that will access the port. We plunked that thing down and now we had a central access. We were like, sweet. I think that's underutilized. I, I think that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if someone's dead and dead and pulseless, using a fish is also okay too. All right. So at the end of the ring down, we're assessing this patient. We're resuscitating this patient. It's the Min Mun show with uh, Rachel at eight and Allie at nine and Chris coming in at seven. We move on to the workup. During the workup, points will be awarded for prioritization of interventions backed by evidence-based medicine. Points will be deducted for poorly defensible workups or treatments. So in your brief EMS history, you get that this is a 64-year-old male uh, brought in by in cardiac arrest. It was a witness cardiac arrest at a restaurant. Patient complained of chest pain prior to collapse and received bystander CPR. He was PEA on initial monitor and received two epinephrines en route. Finger stick blood sugar was 168, and he is a diabetic. His medicines include aspirin and insulin. He has no allergies and he is far too sick for a review of systems. Uh, Temperature was 36.6. He is pulseless. He has no palpable uh, blood pressure and he is apneic. Unconscious, unresponsive with mid-range pupils uh, that are sluggish. Uh, He has a femoral pulse that is palpable with compressions and is PEA on the monitor. Uh, He's receiving bag valve mask ventilations, coarse breath sounds bilaterally, and his GCS is three. The remainder of his exam is pretty unremarkable. Uh, 
So now we're getting into the scene where we're going to start intervening on this patient. Uh, and the first thing I think most people will go to is epinephrine. So Chris, how are you timing your epi doses? How are you separating your epi doses? When are you giving epi in these cases? Yeah, I'm, I'm still a Q3, uh, Q3 minute. I, I pretty much give it with every, uh, with every pulse check if I still have uh, absent pulses. Um, I'm actually a lot quicker now to start an epi drip and to use push dose epinephrine. So uh, those who don't remember how to do that, you take uh, a code dose epi for a push dose epi. You use a code dose epi. That's the 1 to 10,000 or 0.1 milligrams per milliliter. Um, and you take 1 ml of that and you put it in um, 9 mls of a flush. So you push 1 ml out. So you have 9 mls left. You stick it in there and shake it up. And that gives you 100 mics per, per ml. There is a way to make uh, a dirty epi drip. And then um, you just run it in wide open through an 18 gauge. Um, you mix it a little differently. So your concentration is a little weaker. It's like uh, one mic per ml. I, I don't do that just because we're able to get our epi drip so quick. And I, I can I can use my push dose presser, you know, fine. And that, that'll, that'll last for quite a while before we need to start the, the drip. But I, I find myself relying on these push dose pressers. Uh, pretty frequently. And I'll start an epi drip. If I even get an inkling that someone's starting to respond to epinephrine, I'll start the drip really, really quickly. And, and there's a, an article that um, came out um, that showed uh, that shorter uh, average intervals in between epinephrine administration actually seems to be associated with uh, uh, increased survivability and uh, favorable neurologic outcomes. Hey, that, that changed my practice. Now, I wanted to clarify real quick, you said, and I want to make sure that you say it so I can clip you in, because uh, I think you said 0 0.1 mLs per kilo, or milligrams per kilo. Can you say the code does or the ep, dirty epi drip again, just say it again, and I'll clip it in to make sure I got it correct. It's, uh, it's 0 0.1 milligrams per milliliter is the concentration of code epi or one to 10,000 if you're old school. Great, all right. Um, so epi frequency, uh, we give epi, does anybody, uh, who here would give an epi right when the patient hits the door of the ED and gets transferred over to the bed? I agree, it's likely in the time it's taken them to park, unload the patient, get them into the room, get them transitioned over to your bed. It's probably been at least three minutes since their last dose. So I think that would be reasonable. And I'm still pretty old school. I'll I'll give uh, I'll often just give uh, Narcan if I if I have an idea that they're coming in and I have enough time. I'll have flumazenil in the room. I give that not infrequently. Um, and uh, usually they they've gotten a sugar, so uh, dextrose is is in the code card. I don't usually push it unless they need it because we'll know so quickly. Um, but those are good things to just keep in the back of your head. And so I've had quite, quite a few people respond to Narcan. And um, the Narcan drips uh, that uh, are, you know, they'll, they'll code when the Narcan wears off and then they'll come back when the Narcan's running. So Chris, my understanding from the literature is that narc if you give Narcan in cardiac arrest, it's not efficacious, but you've seen some people actually respond to Narcan that had no pulse. I, I had one, I had one less than a month ago that was a, a strong suspicion of heroin overdose uh, coding. And um, we gave epi, bicarb, a patient had a fistula, 
Um, we treated the hyper K stuff as well. Um, but honest to goodness, the Narcan would literally bring the patient back when the, when the Narcan would wear off, we would try the other drugs. Nothing would happen. We push the Narcan patient would come right back in. This happened over and over again for probably an hour. And we had the patient on Narcan drip and, uh, admitted to the ICU and ended up dying actually before leaving the ED. Um, but uh, the Narcan really seemed to be doing the job. Very interesting. Normally, I don't like the N of one. However, oh, yeah. that's, that's a tough one to argue against. So points to when you gave the Narcan, the heart rate would also come up. Like I've had, I've, it's not the only time I've had that. Confound you and your medical expertise. All right. Uh, so Let's move on from Epi, which we all kind of know is in the algorithm for ACLS. We uh, we all agree here that it's BLS that saves lives. It's good chest compressions. It's good bowed valve mask ventilation. That's really what needs to be the focus. It's good oxygenation and ventilation is the better way to say that. Um, but uh, we do like to give medications because we're doctors and we like to try to fix people. So I think bicarb is probably one of the most nebulous drugs that we give. Some people give it, some people swear by it. Some people say it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. Um, Allie, how, how often do you give bicarb in these codes and why? I feel like I give it pretty often. Um, I just, I think depending on, you know, we were talking about downtime down and what the patient situation was before they arrived to you. Um, I often find that patients are quite acidotic by the time that you actually get some labs back. And um, so I, I tend to just, it's sort of in my list. I, I tend to give it not immediately, but pretty early on. Okay. I tend not to, unless I have a specific reason that I feel like it may be beneficial. For example, hyperkalemia or TCA overdose or one of those other indications. Um, nothing I've read has shown it to be efficacious for you know clinical outcomes like ROSC or survival with good neuro outcome. It does seem to improve labs. Um, but how much that actually helps the patient, I don't know. So my, my general philosophy is if I'm working with a resident and they would like to give bicarb, I say, it's not something I typically do. However, if you would like to, I don't think that there is shown to be harm. Um, so go ahead and practice how you'd want. And we can discuss after we're not in this critical situation, pros and cons. So that's particularly for senior residents who are going to be practicing on their own here in a few short months. That's generally how I approach it. Chris, bicarb, is it making the patient better, making the labs better? Um, I think I agree with Rachel. Uh, actually, I, I totally agree with Rachel and I say what she says, but I do what Allie does. Oh, <laughs> I'm just being honest. I don't, I don't actually think, I don't actually think it helps a lot. Um, but it, it makes me feel better. I, and, and that's, that's honestly, I think, borne out in the literature. And it has been borne out in the literature. And I know what that literature says, but points all around everybody because I say one thing and do another just the same and points to Chris for being honest about it. So um, I think the other one that goes right in that same vein is calcium chloride, right? Uh, it's good for hyperkalemia. It's good if you uh, got a massive transfusion and you've bound all of your calcium in the, uh, uh, the citrate and in the blood. Um, it's good for heart contractility. And yet there's uh, literature to say that P 
people who get calcium and cardiac arrest uh, actually have a worse outcome. Is that again, because the calcium causes problems or is it because at the end of a 20 minute code, we all look around at each other and say, does anyone else have any ideas? And someone in the back goes, calcium. That seems likely. Uh, you know, another one that came up recently was fluids in a code. Um, that's not, I'm usually uh, saving my IV access for something different. Um, and I'm not necessarily focusing in on giving IV fluids, uh, but there's some suggestion that maybe IV fluids helping to get your intravascular volume up because you're starting to third space might be efficacious. Do you, uh, do any of you give fluids in a code that doesn't have uh, medications in it? I don't. I do not. Not routinely. I think sometimes patients come in with fluids hooked up. And if that's the case, I don't make any concentrated effort to stop them, but it's not something that I'm typically asking for. And then Chris likes flumazenil and uh, naloxone as his kind of like uh, add-ons uh, for uh, his cardiac arrest. And maybe not everyone, but sounds like that's something that he certainly likes to try. Any other drugs that you all would throw out there as ones to consider when you're going through your H's and T's? I mean, I think a potentially controversial drug that we might should consider in certain cases would be TPA. You know, is this a patient who has a massively swollen right lower extremity and we have the time and personnel to you a quick ultrasound and you see a big old clot in their femoral vein. You know, that's obviously an extreme circumstance, but I think there are certain cases in which discussion and consideration of TPA might be warranted. All right. Um, so if I can summarize that real quick, not TPA for all comers, but TPA for someone who has obvious signs of uh, a clot, uh, whether in their heart or in their leg, that makes you suspicious they have a PE, correct? Yes, not yeah. for all comers, definitely Great. not. I wanna make sure that was stated twice before someone says, I heard on this podcast one time that you should give TPA in a code. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, medications I think are the easiest ones to uh, start off with because we have a role that is the medication person. And we're having that medication person uh, give uh, uh, all the meds that we wanna get some of that stuff going. We feel like that's something we can do a bit extra. But we talked about the most uh, useful thing we can often do is good chest compressions and good uh, breathing. Um, so patients are coming in now with either some kind of a supraglottic airway or just receiving bag valve mask ventilation. At what point are you looking to place an advanced airway in a patient in cardiac arrest? My, my thoughts would be if I have a supraglottic airway in place and it is functioning, meaning whoever is bagging the patient is getting um, good compliance, easy to bag. We have end title hooked up and we have a waveform that looks appropriate um, and there doesn't seem to be any dysfunction with it. I will leave that for unless the patient gets ROSC. Now, if it's not functioning, then I think we need to decide on a good time to either troubleshoot or to switch it out for potentially an ET tube. And if I am going to intubate the patient, then we have to make sure that we have good communication with everyone so that we are not interrupting compressions for the sake of an airway. So, 
in a teaching environment, I, I, I love putting the residents in a situation where they have to deal with that. And um, if I, like I said, put a superglottic airway in first, make sure that I'm getting adequate ventilation with that. Um, but then once um, I feel like we, we've ventilated, um, I can either talk to the residents about uh, intubating LMA uh, or um, tell the residents to have a look during compressions, line up their airway. And then the, the second we do a pulse check, they place the airway and we do not stop the clock for them. Um, and I think it's good, really good practice. And I, you know, every once in a while they can, they get it during the pulse check and sometimes they're, they're in there and, and, uh, they say resume compressions. And then the resident says, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. And then, you know, I get a chance to hit them and smack them and say, no, 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 you, you, you've had your, your chance. And, um, and then they can either try to do it through compressions, which is totally doable. Um, or they, they back out, put the LMA back in and wait and wait, uh, for the next pulse check. We do not condone smacking residents, Chris. You have to keep that to uh, what happens on night shift stays. <laughs> just love that. I get the chance to hit him. Like he's waiting for it. I'm just. <laughs> yeah, he's not. Uh, it, it doesn't just happen as a reflex. He's looking for an opportunity to aggressively go after these residents. Allie, what about you? These patients are coming in. We've been doing uh, chest compressions. We've optimized those which is usually my approach is first, let's optimize chest compressions. Let's get uh, some round of medication circulating. Let's make sure we know the story we're dealing with. At what point are you saying, all right, let's line up and let's get this patient intubated. I agree with the strategies that Rachel and Chris said, if they have a good superglottic airway and you're getting good um, ventilation uh, and things are going okay, I tend to wait. But I, I have a similar strategy with Chris that if we are going to intubate, I don't I don't modify the rest of what's happening to get the airway. So if the resident wants to try and they feel like they can do it, great, but that will not interfere with compressions or anything else that's happening. Great. Then I will give the points to Chris and to Rachel. So, um, <laughs> so We've got this patient intubated now. Uh, we've got medications flowing. We're running like a well-oiled machine. Um, and this has all happened within uh, this, first, uh, this first round, amazing as it may be. Um, but in seriousness, when you get to that first pulse check, I feel like it sneaks up on you compared to the ladders. After I've been running a code for 20, 30 minutes, which is especially common in pediatric codes because we don't want to stop early. When I've been running a code for a while, that two-minute pulse check can't seem to come fast enough. But at the beginning, it seems like it sneaks up on us quite a bit. What are you trying to coordinate during your pulse checks? That's her ultrasound. Oh, sorry. strategy to, to have her finger on the pulse during compressions is really helpful. I'll give that uh, points to Allie then. Yeah, because if you if you are waiting for the pulse check to pulse check to then fumble for a, a an, an, a, a pulse and you've got three providers or a provider, you know, and two, two, and two other people of various training in the, in the emergency department. And they're all trying to feel a pulse. And, you know, it really is sometimes dependent on who's good at feeling a pulse and who's not, and who's able to recognize they're feeling their own pulse and who isn't. Um, and so uh, you, you can take that uh, ambiguity out of it. If you're already have your finger on the pulse during the compressions and then 
uh, during your pulse check, you, you know you're already on it. You either feel it or you don't. I think ultrasound's another common one I try to squeeze in during a pulse check. If somebody can get a probe on the heart or, um, you know, looking for tamponade or um, I guess, you, I mean, you can look for pneumos if that's on your differential during compressions, but um, getting a view of the heart during pulse check is something I try to do too. I try to have the defibrillator pre-charged. So that way, if we do identify a shockable rhythm, we can immediately shock without having to start compressions again, charge it, then stop again. I like, I like charging in preparation as long as you don't get somebody with that charge. So um, we waste a lot of time during these pulse checks. And during that time, literature shows that your perfusion pressure drops precipitously. If you pause for too long, you lose that driving pressure and it takes uh, at least uh, 30 seconds to build it back up. That's 30 seconds of poor perfusion. Um, so really staying on the chest and making sure you do uh, good quality chest compressions is more important than uh, some of the other uh, interventions that we try to do, uh, even ultrasound, intubation, some of these other, you know, higher end, fancier things that we like to do that we hope works. It just doesn't pan out yet to be more efficacious than just really good chest compressions. My biggest plug for ultrasound is actually for carotid flow. Um, I, uh, I really think that, that there are times when someone's in PEA that it's just a function of either body habitus or our, our ability to uh, feel a pulse that is that is calling it PEA rather than a um, uh, rather than ROSC. And so, uh, putting the either the curvilinear probe or the linear probe on the carotid um, and really verifying that the patient has forward flow into the brain with each pulse. You may not be able to feel that, but I'll still treat it as a ROSC, start the epidrip and, um, and move, fo move forward from there. Um, and, and so actually that's my preferred probe. I'll do that before I'll even go look at the heart with either the curvilinear or phased array probe. Um, are there any labs that are gonna be helpful to you during this resuscitation? I've seen lots of people draw labs. I think that they're fine. Um, you can send them anything that's actually going to be useful to you if uh, somebody does get IV access and they send some blood. A VBG with lights would potentially be helpful. What are you looking for on that, Rachel? That's going to make a big difference for you. Most predominantly hyperkalemia. However, you can also look at their acid-base status and lactate. So if their pH is 6.7 and their lactate is 18, that would be poorly, would indicate a poor prognosis. Do you use the results of this VBG to help you make any decisions about whether to keep going on a patient? Or is it more the history, the downtime, the circumstances surrounding that, and the labs don't really factor in that much? I think you have to consider them together. Certainly you can't make decisions based on those labs in isolation, but if you have a story that does indicate unknown or prolonged downtime, as well as potentially a bunch of other medical comorbidities that would make this patient less likely to have a good outcome, and you have labs that would suggest the same, I think when you use those things in conjunction it can help you make decisions. I mean, if they have an unknown downtime, I don't, I, they're going to be acidemic the longer they're down and they're going to be more hyperkalemic. 
Um, and so I, I don't know how those help you unless the person, you, you know that they went down. And so if they went down within such short order that, that those labs are meaningful, then, then go with it. Otherwise, I, I, I don't know if I would rely on those other than knowing, yet my patient hasn't been perfusing uh, very well. I'm giving Chris points on that one just because I kind of tend to agree uh, that when you get a lactate that's greater than 20 and you get a potassium that's 11, to me, that just seems like cell death uh, in somebody whose cells have lysed and they've kind of given up um, versus uh, a history that goes along with somebody who's got a fistula and they're a renal, uh, renal patient. And you think that that hyperkalemia is the cause rather than the end result of somebody who's uh, kind of going through, um, shutdown. So not totally related, but I think it's similar to seizure patients when we get, for some reason, people, when we get lactates on them and they're like, you know, lactates of 20 something and the patient's sitting there talking to you, I think it's, you can be fooled by numeric values. Um, so yeah, I think you have to take the whole, the whole story into consideration. All right. And then this is a very loaded question. It is very much uh, dependent, I think, on each case. Uh, but uh, it is something I think people need to consider when running a code. How long do you go until you say, and the term I usually use with the team is this patient has suffered a non-survivable injury. Um, and you say that there's nothing further we can do. Because I really find, and especially in this past year with COVID, that there is a lot we can do to people, uh, but not always a lot we can do for people. So at what points, whether this is time frame or historical factors or any of these other dynamics, what kind of comes together to start the conversation in your mind as the team leader that maybe this is a non-survivable injury? Um, I, I worked with Philip Hannon just the other day, and he taught me something that I think he learned in the EMS circles, which is if a patient arrives um, or has a, an end title less than 20 at the 20 minute mark, their odds of survivability are almost infinitesimal to the point where it's, it's not. So I would say that would be one situation where if I'm getting an end title that's less than 20 and that's been for prolonged period of time. I was, you know, he said that 20 at 20, I can remember that. And, um, that, that might be something where I might call it a little, a little sooner. And then on the flip side, people who are intermittently responding to my treatments, uh, I, you work longer and then children, you, you work longest. And then I think you have to consider the people in the room, right? Like, um, are there family members who are there witnessing? And then I think you, you, go longer than you know medically you may need to um, because those people have to walk away from that room and go on. And, and um, so I think you take into consideration who's, who's there with you. And that includes your staff and members of your team. You know, I think all of us probably when we get to that point where we think somebody's not survivable, we ask the room, you know, is there anything else that people think um, would be helpful? Um, you know, does anybody have, um, concerns about, um, ending efforts right now. And I mean, again, you have to, your patient doesn't be, is not just the patient on the stretcher, but you got to manage the well-being of your team and whoever's in the room. To your point, Chris, that 
It's absolutely something we think about in the pre-hospital setting. And a lot of patients who would fall into that criteria don't end up making it to the hospital. Their, you know, their cardiac arrests are treated and terminated in the field if they meet, you know, those criteria. They've had 20 minutes of resuscitation, they have slow PEA with a low end title then a lot of those patients don't end up making it to us in the ER. So I think that is certainly an appropriate criteria. Well, at the end of the workup, uh, we have Dr. Munn in the lead with 23, followed by Dr. Williams with 20 and Dr. Mann with 17. And we are going to move on to the DISPO. During the DISPO, points are awarded for a concise and convincing admission call or a clear layperson-level discussion of the discharge instructions. Admission calls should be top-down with the most important information first, riding the fine line between overselling and underselling the admission. Discharge instructions should include shared decision-making, follow-up instructions, and explicit return precautions. And of course, evidence-based medicine is always welcome. Fortunately for you all, you do excellent chest compressions, excellent bag valve mass ventilation, oxygenation, and you get ROSC on your patient. Uh, your patient uh, has an EKG that shows a left bundle branch block and diffuse ST wave inversions. Your finger stick blood sugar uh, when you arrived here was 228. Your venous blood gas, because you asked for it, was 6.94 with a PO2 of 18, a PCO2 of 85, a bicarb of 5, and a lactate of 13.8. The POCUS shows occasional cardiac activity with concentric squeeze, although now with the POCUS placed back on with ROSC, you see global dysfunction uh, with poor LV squeeze. Um, So there are no old EKGs available, except for this one showing a left bundle with diffuse T-wave inversions. Dr. Williams has elected to call the cardiologist first, uh, so they are on the phone. Hello, this is Dr. Catheterization. Hi, Dr. Kath, this is Chris Williams down in the emergency department. I have a uh, 64-year-old uh, gentleman who was brought in by via EMS. Uh, he was a witness to rest at a restaurant. He was having chest pain before he collapsed. He went through a couple rounds of ACLS. We have uh, regained um, spontaneous circulation. Uh, I, uh, he needs to go to the cath lab because he has return of spontaneous circulation and a presumed cardiac incident right now. We're showing global dyskinesia on EKG and um, a left bundle branch block and ST changes. We don't know uh, if these are acute or not because there's no prior for comparison. Uh, but he has not regained consciousness yet. So, you know, I just had one of these patients last week and they told me to take him to the cath lab and I cathed them and it was clean. It wasn't the heart and then they died. And that looks bad on my record, man. Like, are you sure like this is the heart? Did they have some kind of dysrhythmia? They come in in VF or? No, no, no documentation of any um, shockable rhythms in the field or here. Um, and so I can't tell you it is or is not the heart other than that's our primary working diagnosis. And um, your literature and mine both says he should go to the cath lab. Oh, gosh. Um, could you, would you be able to like scan his chest, make sure it's not a PE? Do you have anything on your fancy ultrasound that looks like it might be a PE or like a dissection or something else before I squared him? Yeah, I mean, you 
you can see if he has a PE or a dissection on the on the table. Is my understanding? If we squirt him with a contrast and do a CT scan, then he's going to get a double contrast load when you cath him. All right, all right, all right. You know, so the real evidence of neurologic compromise before he went down. Okay, fine. I'll come in. I'll come okay. in. Excellent. All right. Uh, Dr. Munn is next, and uh, she has elected uh, through Dr. Williams uh, to discuss with the family about the current state of this patient and to get them the patient update, uh, which is usually something that after the patient has uh, come, uh, come back, we've got ROSC, we've got the medical part taken care of. Uh, our wonderful social workers will come and find us and say, the family would like to talk to you. Uh, so Rachel, real quick, just like a couple sentences, how do you prepare for that interaction? And then what do you say to the family? So in preparation, I just try to make sure that I have all of the available information that I can convey to them. So it's helpful at this point that we know the patient is going to the cath lab. So that is the kind of next step that I can give to the family. And I think that's what everyone wants to know is, well, what next? So that's what I'm making sure that I know prior to going to talk to them. All right. And the family shows up and says, doctor, how is my husband? So, hi, my name's Dr. Munn. I understand that you're the wife of patient X. Is that correct? Correct. Can you tell me what you know about what happened? He, we were at a restaurant, we were uh, eating, and then he just said that his chest hurt. He thought it was indigestion. He went up to go to the bathroom and he just fell. And then somebody started doing CPR on him. And then the paramedics showed up and they haven't been able to let me back. When can I see him? Okay. Let me go over what I know about what's going on, and then we can go see him together. So from what I understand and what we've evaluated so far, it looks like your husband had what's called a cardiac arrest. And that means that his heart stopped working for a period of time. That's why the paramedics were doing CPR, and that's why they brought him here to us. We continued to do CPR, we gave some medications, and we were able to get his heart started on its own again. However, he is not yet awake, and he does have a, a breathing tube in that's helping us give him oxygen while we're taking care of him. So when we go in to see him, he's not probably going to be responsive to you. So just prepare yourself for that. So what we think may have happened is he may have had a heart attack. There may be a blockage oh in one of his heart arteries. So the next step is one of our cardiologists is going to take him to the cath lab where they will put in a special IV and they will squirt some dye into his heart and they will look at those arteries to see if that was the cause. And he may potentially get a stent if that was the case. So we can go see him. Is there anything that you want to ask me before we head that way? Is he going to be okay? It's really early to answer that question. I don't want to give you a false hope. So right now we just don't know. I would say he's in what we would call critical condition, um, but we are doing all the appropriate treatments for him to give him the best shot that we can. Okay. Can I go see him now? Okay. Yes. I'll take you over there. Great. Excellent job to all three of our panelists with probably uh, one of the toughest things that we do um, in dealing with not just the medical part of a cardiac arrest, but the teamwork aspect 
the uh, emotional aspect. And this is probably one of the most exhausting things that we do in medicine, um, especially in the emergency department. And then we have to go from here right back to our regular job again, uh, seeing patients who've been waiting in the lobby for a few hours and trying to explain to them why everything is so backed up. So Congrats to all three of you, and thank you so much for excellent input. Uh, Dr. Williams did an excellent job of invoking the literature with the cardiologist, but I have to give it to Dr. Munn for an excellent uh, answer to the question, is he going to be okay? I thought that was great. Uh, so Dr. Munn, uh, you are this month's winner of AZMCAST, and we want to give you uh, your time to rant and rave and say anything that you would like on your state of medicine in the art. So have at it. I'd like to say that my palms are sweaty just from doing that on a podcast. So those kinds of conversations are never easy, but they get better with time and practice, but still hard even on a podcast. Um, I think the one thing I would say, and I, I wanted to keep it a little bit on topic, and it's something we discussed briefly, but not in too much detail today. My little rant is going to be about the utility of end title. I love end title for just about everything, but I think in cardiac arrest, it has so many uses. One, it can help us confirm that our airway is in place and functioning correctly. You can see the uh, standard waveform for that. And it can also help us keep an eye on our CPR quality. And it can also help us uh, determine if we've had ROSC. And it can also help us determine if our patient has kind of declined to a point where our end title is just steadily going down and down and down. And our resuscitation may unfortunately not be successful. So use end title. Uh, use it well. And I think it can help us with a number of different things, particularly in cardiac arrest. Excellent. Well, thank you all very much again for your expertise and for always being awesome at describing these things in a way that makes it seem like even I could do it. So thanks to everyone and have a wonderful month. <laughs>